Monday we had the choir of St Margaret's Church Prestwick and it was the, at the name of Jesus. Uh, the words date from the 19th century and the tune is from the 1960s. Now let's see what David has for us. Jonathan Aitken was a prominent politician who was sent to prison for perjury. Michael Barclay talks to Jonathan about his prison experiences and the importance of music in his life. When you left prison, Jonathan Aitken, you studied theology in Oxford and you were ordained as a priest last year at the age of 76. You work now as a voluntary prison chaplain at Pentonville. And I wonder, given these experiences, both from one side of the bars and the other, if you like, what do you feel are the worst problems facing our prisons? What are the reforms that we should really be thinking about? There are huge problems in prisons like drugs, like overcrowding, like violence. But much more important in my mind than any of that is, well, what's going to happen to you when you come out? And do you have uh, a place to live, a chance of a job? And I'm very involved in charities which do offer exactly those kind of hopes, employment and so on. I'm president of a charity up in Yorkshire which last year found jobs for 150 prisoners as they came out of Wakefield and Leeds and Doncaster prisons. So giving hope uh, of a fresh start a second chance. And the prison system is so busy just containing people, trying to make it safe. It doesn't really think ahead. And it, it, that's a reform, a change of culture, which I hope will gradually grow. Are there some things that prisons do that they're doing right, as it were? There are lots of things that the prisons do right. Prison officers are very underrated as a class of public servants. They have on the whole a more difficult job practically than anybody else, more, more difficult than the police, I would say, and the number of dedicated guys in there doing great jobs. But uh, one I, the... I think that's a very important point, actually, because they are denigrated from both sides of the argument, aren't they? Somewhere? Yes. I mean, I think prison officers are undervalued by society, and they were still in the sort of age of porridge. <laughs> but actually, fact, they're a lot of very good, young, thoughtful, gentle prison officers who do an absolutely outstanding job. I was on duty throughout the Christmas period in Penville, and the prison stayed calm, and alarm bells only went twice in the whole period, entirely because the officers were so sensitive and so careful to stop the morale descending into gloom or worse, like violence. So I rate prison officers high. Uh, one thing the prison service does well is visits. Uh, they facilitate, encourage family visits, and of course that's a big lifeline for prisoners. So we shouldn't knock the prison world and the prison service in particular too much. They do a good job in lots of ways. Music, and we'll stay with the prison theme to some extent. This was recorded in Adiwell Prison, which is in West Lothian, it was recorded with the Sound Right Singers and the Prison Choir. It's a blending together of The House of the Rising Sun and Amazing Grace.
And that came from the Adewell Prison Choir and the Sound Roots Singers. Uh, the proceeds of their album, by the way, they went to Shelter Scotland. But let's get back to Michael Barclay and Jonathan Aitken. The next piece of music brings together one of your musical passions with another aspect of your working life as a writer and a biographer. Well, this is really a piece of fun. I've always loved myself, light opera and enjoyed Gilvan Sullivan. But the most unexpected Gilvan Sullivan mini-performance I ever heard was when I was writing the biography of President Nixon. And I sort of was, to some extent, his arranger of appointments and so on. And I telephoned Harold Wilson one day, who was Prime Minister when Nixon was President. And Harold Wilson very graciously invited uh, Nixon to come to dinner, just a little private room in the Dorchester Hotel. Only two other guests, Nixon, Wilson, Marsha Faulkner, uh, Wilson's long-term aide, and me. And towards the end of the evening, a certain amount of wine had been drunk very agreeably. Nixon said to Wilson, um, well, Harold, you know, you and I have had great power. What are you doing now? What are you keeping your batteries charged with? And uh, Wilson made the unexpected fact, well, Dick, as a matter of fact, I'm really concerning myself with Gilbert and Sullivan. I'm consultant to the Dolly Cart Opera Company doing this and the other for them about copyrights. And most unexpectedly, Nixon replied, Gilbert Sullivan, I love it. I was assistant stage manager when I was at Whittier College in my teens, and I was uh, particularly glad of the performance of Pinafore. And Wilson says, Pinafore? I love Pinafore, says Wilson. Um, I know it off by heart. So do I, says Nixon. And then suddenly one of them starts beating time on the table. And I think Nixon's got a rather good baritone voice. He sort of starts, you know, when I was a lad, I served a term and office boy and the turn is firm. Wilson joins in absolutely again, and not a bad voice. And these two elder statesmen are word perfect for whatever eight verses or so there are of Pinafore ending up and you all may be rulers of the Queen's Navy. <laughs> and Marsha Falkander and I burst into applause, but the Dorchester waiter, the only other person in the room, leapt to his feet, clapping, shouting, Bravissimo, Mr. Presidente, Bravissimo, Prime Minister. But it was terrific to see these uh, two political giants of yesteryear thoroughly enjoying themselves and actually being um, word perfect and I think in both cases not bad voices it's a moment of huge fun <laughs> As a lad, I served a term as office boy to an attorney's firm. I cleaned the windows and I swept the floor and I polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up that handle so carefully that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. As office boy, I made such a mark that they gave me the post of a junior clerk. I served the writs with a smile so bland, and I copied all the letters in a big round hand. We copied all the letters in a big round hand. I copied all the letters in a hand so free that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. We copied all the letters in a hand so free that now we In serving writs, I made such a name that an articled clerk I soon became. I wore clean collars and a brand new suit for the pass examination at the Institute. For the pass examination at the Institute. 
that past examination did so well for me that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. That past examination did so well for me that now he is the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Of legal knowledge I acquired such a grip that they took me into the partnership and the junior partnership I ween was the only ship I ever had seen. Was the only ship but that kind of ship so suited me that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. But that kind of ship so suited me that now he is the ruler of the Queen's Navy. I grew so rich that I was sent by a pocket borough into Parliament. I always voted at my party's call. I never thought of thinking for myself at all. He never thought of thinking for himself at all. I thought so little. They rewarded me by making me the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Now, landsmen, all, whoever you may be, if you want to rise to the top of the tree, if your soul isn't fettered to an office stool, be careful to be guided by this golden rule. Be careful to be guided by this golden rule. Stick close to your desks and never go to sea, and you all may be rulers of the Queen's Navy. Well, I enjoyed that all the more for your introduction, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I remember as we left the Dorchester that night... Nixon said, oh, Harold, he sure knows how to make a party go. <laughs> he did. And I, I can imagine the chortling at uh, following the party's call and not thinking yes, they, for yourself they, at all. Yes, they both made a lot of gestures. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Green performing When I Was a Lad from the first act of HMS Pinafore by Gilbert and Sullivan. Isidore Godfrey conducting the Doily Cart Opera Company and New Promenade Orchestra of London. A recording from 19... 48. And Michael Barclay was talking to Jonathan Aitken. We're going back to prison, so to speak, for our next track. This time it's Tennessee Only Ford with the Alcatraz Prison Men's Choir. Recorded, I think, in the 1950s or 60s, Alcatraz Prison is now a tourist attraction and museum, I understand. The song comes from the 16th century... Martin Luther, the author, and it is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Confide 
Ford and a mighty fortress is our God with the choir of Alcatraz Prison. It's Matt Redman this time with the song Ten Thousand Reasons or Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Oh 
10,000 Reasons, or Bless the Lord, O My Soul. A poem from Malcolm Geit coming up now, and here is David to tell us about it. Malcolm Geit has written a series of poems based on some of George Herbert's poetic themes. This week we hear Malcolm reading about joy, and afterwards it's followed by Mazurka from Capelia by Delib. Joy. How does she come, my joy, when she comes walking over the wasteland and the empty waves? She comes unbidden between sleep and waking. She comes like winter jasmine on cold graves. She comes like some swift wind. She fills my sails and on we surge, cresting the wine-dark sea, the fine prow lifting as my vessel heals. The tiller tugs and quivers, and I'm free of all the land's long cares, as that brisk breeze sings in the thrill and tremor of taut stays. So my heart's rigging, tuned and taut as these, sings with the wind that freshens into praise. For when joy comes, however brief her stay, she parts my lips, and I know how to pray.
of the Leibs Mazurka from Coppelia. Malcolm Geit's poem was about joy, and uh, we'll continue that theme, though, in, <laughs> in perhaps a less erudite way, shall we say. Tennessee Ernie joins with some children for the children's song, I've Got the Joy, Joy, Joy Where? Down in My Heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in Some enthusiasm there from Tennessee Ernie and the Children's Choir for I've Got the Joy, Joy Down in My Heart. Now let's get back to David for our next piece. The American election is in two weeks' time. Ernie Ray talks to a group of experts about the role that religion will play in electing the president. The First Amendment of the American Constitution guarantees freedom of speech and asserts that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That means that in the United States, unlike in the UK, there is a separation between church and state. And yet, religion plays a major role in presidential elections. America goes to the polls on November the 3rd. Donald Trump has up to now won the support from the religious right, white evangelicals and conservative Catholics. Joe Biden appeals to more liberal Catholics and Protestants and to the majority of black voters, which raises interesting questions as to why evangelical Christians will vote for a man whose lifestyle seems to be at odds with their moral principles, and why Catholics would vote for Joe Biden, whose pro-choice views in the abortion debate clash with the teachings of the Catholic Church. 
Sarah Posner is reporting fellow at Type Investigations. Her most recent book is Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Jane Little is a former religious affairs correspondent for the BBC and now commentates on religion and politics in the United States. Christopher White is national correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter and Anthea Butler is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is religion going to be in the forthcoming election, Sarah? I would give it about a 9 And that's largely because Trump's base of white Christian nationalists is campaigning for him as the most pro-religious freedom president in history. And the Biden campaign is going to push back on that, obviously. Anthea? (laughs) Eleven. Because nobody knows how to leave it alone. And I think that the ways in which religion has been spoken about, especially by President Trump, with accusing Biden of taking away God, is only going to escalate. Chris? Well, as a religion reporter, if for no other reason than uh, for job security, I want to say a 10, I'm going to go with a 9 because I think the global pandemic will lead many voters to cast their ballots based on crisis management and rebuilding the economy. But of course, there's a moral dimension to those responsibilities. And so religion matters. Jane? We've got a backdrop of biblical proportions of a plague and fire and floods and a summer of anti-racism protests and this is a moment of reckoning this is not a normal election year and perhaps what counts as a religious issue is broadening maybe racism is a religious issue the religious left have been trying to do that for years i think something is shifting clearly a 10 or even an 11 right now anthea religion in america is very different to the uk and western europe give me an overall picture of what the mix is. What you hear about a lot are evangelicals because they manage to grab the news cycle all the time, and this is the group that everyone looks at. But I think what gets missed is that there's, A, a lot of religious diversity in America, and B, there's a lot of religious contention in America. In this particular election cycle, I think that the story might not be evangelical so much as it is Catholics and how Catholics will end up falling across um, party lines in terms of a vote. You also have a significant Muslim population. And that population right now has had some issues with the Biden campaign and has issues, obviously, with um, Trump's campaign. We have a lot of people who also are not affiliated with anything. They are the nuns. And the nuns are an interesting group. And I'm not sure that anybody really knows how they are going to fall out. And then on top of that, we have the interesting aspect of Kamala Harris, who is um, currently going to a Baptist church, but was raised both Christian and Hindu. So basically, I think that the religious milieu in America is a complicated one if you're looking from the outside, because it's hard to really understand why does this still matter in America. Religion has not always been important in presidential elections, but it all sort of changed with Ronald Reagan, Sarah. I wouldn't say it was unimportant before then, but what changed with Ronald Reagan was this very deliberate organizing of white evangelicals and white Catholics as basically um, an appendage of the Republican Party. And that has stuck in place since the 1980 election. I think what became different in 2016 is that for the first time, although in the past white evangelicals and and their allies on the religious right 
saw presidential candidates as significant or one of them, as in the case of George W. Bush, who was also evangelical. I think for the first time in Donald Trump, they saw the presidential candidate as a sort of savior or messiah figure. Chris? I cover the Catholic Church, and I, I think uh, going back to the 70s, we saw a real shift with the abortion debates when Cardinal Joseph Bernadine, who uh, was the longtime Archbishop of Chicago, met with both Carter and, and Ford. And he goes into the meeting with Carter, and is very disappointed where, where he stands on abortion. And then he goes into the meeting with Ford and says he's quite pleased. And from that moment on, it was this, for many white Catholics, as if the bishops had given their imprimatur, their seal of approval, to the Republican Party. And I think we've seen a kind of effort to disentangle that since then. Uh, but for the most part, uh, white Catholics have been a stronghold of the Republican Party. And Jane, it seems that the, the abortion debate is obviously a very central part of just about any presidential campaign. But for the religious right, it's all about saving America. The irony is that even a majority of Americans do not support the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that enshrined a woman's right, uh, essentially, to have an abortion. But I do believe that there are many other issues now coming to the fore. And a religious left that's been fighting for airtime and fighting for space for so long is much more out there now. We have a new moral majority. You know, there is something happening in America that is, is really shifting shifting the picture from the way we always reported it in, in the past, which is which way are evangelicals going to go and is it all about abortion? And Irene Friends there with the, their analysis of the place of religion in the American political scene. Coming up, uh, we're going to be hearing from Larry Gentis as Bartimaeus. Uh, Bartimaeus, who became a follower of Jesus. But before that, this is the Oasis Worship Band and I Will Follow. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you.
heard the Oasis worship band with I Will Follow. But uh, let's go back over to David one more time. Larry Gentis lives in Kirk Michael and goes to Pilochry Baptist Church. Larry has written a piece where he imagines himself to be Bartimaeus. Here is Larry now as Bartimaeus. Hello, my name is Bartimaeus, and I am, as you see me, blind and useless. That's why I sit here and beg all day long. I've got nothing better to do, and if people don't throw coins at me, I'll starve. Alms, alms for the blind, alms, alms for the blind. Well, I'm blind, but they're deaf. Alms, alms for the blind, alms, alms for the blind. All day long, that's all I do. Sit in the cold ground and call out for arms, listening for the clinking sound of a coin in a can. Not much of a life, but that's all I can do. Some days are better than others, and I always hope it's not raining or too cold, and sometimes the sizzling sun beats down on me. After all, what can a blind man do in a life where everything is about seeing? And the people... Well, there are the merciful and kind ones who bid me good morning and throw a copper. But there are also the ones who make fun of me. Sometimes the children do that. Or worse yet, some of them actually insult me and call me all sorts of horrid names. I don't like those ones. I can't even go anywhere to avoid them because you need to see where you're going. Keeps coming back to that. They think I'm blind because I'm a sinner and I'm being punished by God. But really, I never hurt anyone. Not sure as I could. Alms, alms for the blind. Alms, alms for the blind. Speaking of people, they say there's this rabbi who apparently heals people. And not just easy stuff, but lepers, lame people, even, oh, oh, dead people raised to life. Cool, I sure would like to meet up with him. They say he's coming to this town as well. But I'm sure he wouldn't bother with a poor blind beggar like me. Well, but who knows? Alms, alms for the blind. Alms, alms for the blind. Hey, oh, what's that noise? I may not see, but my hearing's just fine. Sounds like a huge crowd is coming my way. What's that? I ask. You say he's here and he's coming down this very street? I've got to make myself heard above this crowd. I've only got one chance at this, and really, what do I have to lose? I already have nothing, so if this fails, I only have more of nothing. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! No, I will not be quiet. I will not be silenced. Jesus, David, son of David, have mercy on me! Hey! Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! Oh, he's calling me, telling me to come to him. What do I want? Master, I want to see. I want my sight like everyone else. To see. Suddenly, a world of sights hit me like a thunderclap as I started to see colors and shapes. Whoa, oh, oh, I, I never in my wildest dreams believed colors could be so beautiful. The blue of the sky, the greens of trees and plants, the browns and the golds of the fields. Oh, and, and look at this. The shapes of people, men, women, big people, small people, old and young people, colors, shapes of clothes. Oh, and the different colors of the grains and the spices in the marketplace. Oh, the huge temple building. Oh, I, I, I never thought anything could be so big and magnificent. 
I had no idea such beauty existed. The world of sight. So this is what normal people see every day and probably don't even think about it. But for me, this is the most wonderful day of my life. I wonder why Jesus stopped and bothered with a nobody like me. Why did he do it? What am I going to do now? Well, the first thing is to get rid of my begging bowl and mat. I no longer need them. The truth is, I can do all sorts of things now that I can see. The most wonderful thing is that I can choose. And that choice is to follow him. He talks about being saved and the good news of the kingdom of God. I, I don't really understand these things, but if I stay with him, he'll teach me. He gave me back my sight, but he also gave me something I never had. He gave me a life worth living. Wouldn't you follow someone who did that for you? This is taken from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10 and verses 46 to 52. And Bartimaeus brings us to the end of this edition of Heart and Soul. Thank you for listening. Our thanks, too, to Larry Gentis there, Ernie Ray and Friends, Malcolm Guite, Michael Barclay and Jonathan Aitken, all for their contributions this morning, and Sam, Sam Ross, for putting the whole thing together for us. We'll wish you a good day, a good week, and God's blessing, and we'll leave you with Chris Tomlin and Forever. Just